Proctor here some announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, in this episode, John mentioned a discount code to LambdaConf2016 for your listeners of the podcast. That code is 10GIGRI and will get you 10% off the standard self-pay registration to the conference. Some upcoming conference announcements are on May 2nd and May 3rd, FlatMap Oslo is taking place in Oslo, Norway. FlatMap Oslo is a conference about functional programming, mainly on the JVM. The call for speakers is now open and will be accepting talk submissions until April 3rd. Please visit 2016.flatmap.no for information about the call for speakers and to register. And make sure to use the code GEEKRY when registering for 10% off. And on May 4th, the day after FlatMap Oslo, the Type Level Summit is taking place. Type Level is an umbrella project for a number of prominent Scala libraries which emphasize pure, typeful, functional programming in Scala with an emphasis on outreach and promoting a friendly, safe community of collaborators and contributors. Visit typelevel.org slash event slash 2016-05-summit-oslo to find out more. LambdaConf 2016 will be taking place May 26th through the 29th in Boulder, Colorado. LambdaConf 2016 invites you to rediscover the magic of programming. LambdaConf is three days of conference, followed by an unconference on Sunday the 29th and three days of pre-conference events. Visit lambdaconf.us to find out more and to register, and don't forget to make sure to use code 10 geekery for 10% off the standard self-pay registration. PolyConf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated with news as more details become available and to sign up for newsletter updates. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on your favorite podcast directory or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us, we have John DeGoes. John, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm happy to, Stephen, and thanks for inviting me. So I am a chief technical officer at a company called Slam Data, which is a startup that I founded. And I've been an engineer for quite some time, actually. Closing in on 30 years now, I've been writing software. I got my start when I was eight years old, and I learned how to write a basic on a Commodore 64. And since then, it's been one language after another, assembly, C, C++, Pascal, even a bit of COBOL in there, and then modern languages like Java and so forth. And it's given me an opportunity to really grow up with the industry and watch it evolve, new programming languages, new paradigms, new libraries, new operating systems, new ways of writing software. And it's it's been one of the... Um, probably the the best career choice I could have possibly picked out because there's a never-ending amount of stuff going on and it's always exciting. There's always more to learn. Every year or so, it, it feels like we make a little bit of progress on figuring out how it is we reliably build a large-scale software systems that actually work and do what we want and are, are reasonably efficient to maintain it doesn't happen fast, but I can verify since the early days of go-to line number 10 and so forth, we've made a lot of progress, and it's definitely been one heck of a journey for me. 
So I got to meet you because you put on Lambda Conf and got to meet you at the conference last year, which was actually the second year, which is one of the functional programming focus conferences. There's only a couple of them in the U.S., but how did you get into functional programming from that background? So you went through a bunch of these languages, which you rattled off, but you didn't actually mention any functional programming languages. So what got you interested and how did you get first exposed to some of your first functional programming languages and the sense that you even realized that you wanted to start a conference around that in a broader topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say it probably started around 12 years ago or so. And I was working in this really large code base. It was uh, 3 million lines of C code. And it was totally effectful, totally imperative. And the way it had been structured, it was really, really hard to test this application. It was totally non-modular. There was no way to test it. And as a result, I spent about, I want to say, 50% of my time, actually the whole team spent about 50% of their time merely tracking down and fixing bugs. And that's enormous. That means basically half of the cost of this software project was merely fixing all the bugs that were introduced by the other half of the project. And reasoning about code base that large is just impossible, totally impossible. And so how you track down these bugs are you load stuff up into a debugger and you step through it line by line. And in some cases, it can take you weeks to track down a single bug because there's so many different components involved, has to be the right data set, the right set of race conditions, the right this, the right that. And it got me thinking there's got to be a better way to write software. And at the same time, I had been using... Mathematica for doing mathematical simulations and symbolic computation and some other things. And what interested me about that language is that it was totally different than writing imperative C. And it was much more mathematical. It was much more declarative, if you will, because you would define functions and equations and so forth. And that got me thinking, hey, is there actually a way where we could write a really big software program and have it look more like a bunch of equations that you can reason about in isolation and that don't have any of this messy, imperative side effects everywhere, race conditions everywhere, global mutable state here and there interfering with the way that you think about how the software works. And so I actually didn't make much progress, but I played around with Mathematica and I searched and I found Haskell and that was my first introduction to Haskell. And I did what everyone does when they first see Haskell. They're like, what the heck is this? It doesn't look like C. It doesn't look like any other programming language that I've ever seen. And how in the world do you program without an assignment? And that concept, the, the concept that you could write an entire program without having any sort of assignment was mind-blowing. And I did not succeed. My first attempt to learn Haskell, of course, it was a part-time pet project, but I played around with it, played around with the REPL for a while and ended up just getting busy and distracted and other things. But I did start to incorporate some of my learnings into a side project that I was working on. This was a Java application and it was a collaborative 
text editor for software developers. Because I've been very passionate about helping people write software together. I think it's a way to overcome part of the complexity of modern software development is to do things like pair programming. So I was working on a side project. It was a Java application. It ended up taking me and some other engineers years to complete that project sort of as a part-time hobby thing. And it was a big application. It was probably 400,000 lines of code. And some of the things that I discovered worked really well for simplifying the way you reason about a software application that large is immutable data structures and recursion instead of imperative loops. And so even though that application was by no means you know, a functional program, over the course of building that, we went from having lots of mutable structures in the beginning to close to the end of that project having almost none and switching totally to these immutable data structures and using much more recursion in places where that made sense. And that's when I started, I didn't actually know it at the time, but I was rediscovering functional programming in Java of all languages. And it was really exciting. I felt like that was the highest quality code base that I had ever worked on. And to see it get up to that many lines of code and still be fairly high quality and and work, it was a bit of a revelation for me. And what that did is it inspired me to take another look at, at functional programming. So I left that project, different state, different city, different job. I went through a number of other different jobs. And eventually I started to uh, return to Haskell and to concepts in functional programming because immutable data structures and recursion, they only get you so far. And then a big question that I had in my mind is, okay, well, we can build little parts of our program using immutable data structures. And if we have little algorithms, we can use recursion and other sorts of things to solve them without having to resort to assignments and loops and so forth. And that's all well and good. It it keeps little bits of your application here and there comprehensible and easier to understand and more robust to bugs, easier to maintain. But a gigantic question inside my head was, how do we scale this thing up? As it's not obvious, once you've sort of got the basics of functional programming down and you've seen the benefits of immutable data structures and you you see how you can solve, you know, sorting a list with a recursive algorithm that's very beautiful and elegant and easy to understand, it's not obvious how you scale that up to an application because an application is huge, it's complex, there are all these different components, there are different services talking to each other and so forth. And so I'd say that was um, probably the next major step of my evolution of functional programming. And it, it took years. It took as many or more years as the first part of it, which is trying to understand how you can apply the techniques and concepts in functional programming to large scale functional programs. How can you build something that's really big and really complicated and does a lot of stuff and can benefit even at the highest levels of the application from the techniques in functional programming. And the desire to do that led me to the Scala programming language because I was VP of engineering for a company that was based on the JVM. 
And rather than use Java, I wanted to incorporate more of these, these learnings that I had undergone as part of my hobby projects. And so I chose Scala and said, well, we're going to, you know, Scala is supposedly this functional object-oriented hybrid language. So I thought to myself, well, surely if I'm going to make the next stage in my evolution as a functional programmer, Scala is going to be a, a better pick than Java. So I picked Scala, I built an engineering team there, and we did what I would say is pseudo-functional programming. In retrospect, it wasn't all that functional, but nonetheless, it was better than anything that I had done prior, and the code base was higher quality. And we started to get you know out of just using it for immutable data structures and trying to incorporate it more into the architecture of the program. After that company was acquired, I jumped into the startup world yet again and built a company called Precog, which was also a Scala-based startup. And I put together a really great engineering team there of people who were all interested in functional programming. And I started to see we didn't practice purely functional programming at that company, but we got closer to it than I ever had. And in particular, I started to see how even larger components of an application can be built using techniques in functional programming. How you can, for example, model data processing and analytics as a series of functional operations on streams. And this revelation led to, well, it was again, you know, a big success in terms of the quality of that product was very, very high. It was fairly easy to maintain. It was easier to reason about than any other application I had worked on of that size. And things started clicking even further. And so that finally got me to a point where I said, I'm just going to sort of, you know, bite the bullet and start studying functional programming. And that led me to Haskell and all the techniques in functional programming for managing architecture of large scale functional programs, how they work together, how they talk together. And after Precog was sold to another company, I didn't stick around for all that long. I took some time off and, and that time off actually allowed me to explore what functional programming looks like in the large and to learn Haskell and to become involved in the, the PureScript ecosystem. And it was really a tremendous period of learning for me. And it's not that I'm not learning right now. I'm, I am learning. I think that's one of the great things about programming is that you can devote your entire life to it and still be learning more stuff and better ways of, of writing software. But certainly that early period when I was taking some time off to focus on some consulting was a period of rapid learning. And I got so excited about functional programming because you go through your life as an imperative programmer and you realize that once a program becomes a certain size and that size sort of differs depending on the language and your familiarity with the topic and whether or not you wrote it and so on. But once you reach a certain size, your ability to understand what that program does, it goes out the window. And it is so hard to struggle to understand a 3 million line of code application that's been written as a spaghetti code with global variables everywhere, loops everywhere, immutable data structures and threads all racing to do different things that you almost lose hope in, in the future of software engineering. And then when you switch over and you discover this other world 
that has existed for decades that almost no one knows about and almost no one uses. It's like discovering the Garden of Eden. And you're like, wow, this way of writing software exists. And it's different and it's better than what everyone else is doing in industry. And, and so I became so, so passionate about functional programming because for the first time in my, what was then, you know, 25 year career as a software engineer, I discovered that it was possible to reason about a large application, functional application, by breaking it down into components and reasoning about those components individually. And that's the holy grail of software design. That's why object-oriented programming enjoyed the little rapid rise to popularities because in object-oriented programming, you try to encapsulate state and you break things down into objects and you try to reason about the objects in isolation and test them in isolation and then build your big application from all these different objects. That turns out to work possibly better than spaghetti code, but, but still you encounter a lot of problems even with that approach. But the goal is the same. It's enabling us to reason about large systems, not all at once, but by breaking them down into smaller things that we can reason about. And functional programming is a paradigm that achieves that better than any other paradigm that I've seen to date. And the reason is, is because what are what is pure functional programming? It's programming with functions and equations. And one of the nice things about equations is A equals B. So anytime you see an A, you just substitute B and you can sort of understand that. And you can build up an understanding of a more complex system by breaking it down into its components and understanding each one separately. And that's remarkable. That's just amazing. And large scale imperative systems don't have that property. You literally cannot reason about the entire thing unless you can keep all of that state and all of that complexity inside your head at one time. And, and no one can with programs of sufficient size. So I became super passionate about functional programming because I, I saw there was a uh, way through the madness there was a way to think about software that I could grab onto and hold onto. And as a result, I think it was, let's see, 2014, I had some downtime, you know, between jobs. I was doing some consulting and I was learning really fast. And I thought, well, I've sort of done a little bit of functional programming. I'm learning more about it. I'm seeing how things are clicking together like they never were before in, in the world of imperative programming. And so I decided to organize the first ever LambdaConf. And I thought, well, there's really nothing in the Mountain West region. There's conferences sort of all over at the, at the coasts, but there's nothing really right in the middle of America and sort of an underserved area. So why not try to put together a conference on functional programming? And that's where the first LambdaConf was born. It was a desire to promote functional programming, specifically in the Mountain West region, but also to learn more, to share more, and to try to build a community of people who are passionate about functional programming and who can sort of take advantage of that community to do more stuff. And that was, that was where the first LambdaConf was born in 2014. Mostly, it was a bunch of speakers that I personally knew and personally invited, even though we had some third-party contributions. And it was um, 
a small scale affair. I think we had like 120 people there and uh, probably two thirds of them were local and they just tried it out because, hey, this is uh, this is one of the only conferences on programming in the area. So I may as well give it a try. And so we had about 120 people show up and they, they got really excited and had a great time. And it was it was just a blast. It was sort of a, a much smaller scale thing back then, but it was a big success. And a ton of people learned that and it helped strengthen the local community of functional programmers. And it was a great experience. And that's where this whole thing got started. So I've heard it takes a special kind of crazy to decide to put on a conference and then repeat it in a similar way that it takes a special kind of crazy to write a book and then decide you want to write another book because of the effort and put on involved. And I made it to last year's, which was the 2015 Lambda Conf. And there are a few people there before from 2014. And essentially it sounded like you doubled in size between those two years and just exploded in what you were able to do because you offered three days of conference. You had a pre-conference that was peer script coming up beforehand that you were involved with. So what did you find out about putting that conference together and putting it on for a second year? And now you're going into a third year. And what does that kind of transition look like from the organizer perspective, from seeing that community grow from that first hint of, let me try this and see if I can throw this together and have 120 people show up to essentially almost doubling that the next year. And I don't know what this year's 2016 in May looks like, but from your perspective as the organizer and putting this on and seeing that community involvement and seeing the people come in both as speakers and as guests, what does that look like to you? Well, you're certainly right about that special kind of crazy. I think you do have to be a little crazy in order to try to put on an event like this. And I, I definitely am <laughs> definitely a, a little bit crazy. So 2014, that edition of LambdaConf was more or less a, a glorified meetup because it was mostly speakers I knew and personally invited. And uh, there were a lot of local people there. So it was, it was basically a, a really big meetup. And don't get me wrong, there was still a ton of work in organizing that, um, developing the website and arranging for catering and arranging for space and all the equipment that you have to have and coordinating with speakers and just all that stuff. It takes up a, a large amount of time getting some sponsors because we had no way to even fund the first version of the conference. The, the admission price was just, you know, so low and it was just a single day affair, but still your breakfast and lunch and all the, the venue costs, all these things they add up. And so it was a huge amount of work to get that all pulled together but people really loved it and they liked it so much that end of 2014, I was questioning whether or not I would even put together a 2015 edition because it was a lot of work and there are other conferences people can go to. They don't perhaps quite have the same flavor as, as LambdaConf, but there are other conferences out there. But then people started asking me and saying, hey, when, when are we going to be able to register for LambdaConf 2015? I'm like, well, I don't know, but I, I guess I better get on that. And really, it, it all came down to the fact that people had a really great time at, at that 2014 edition. And they learned a lot. They shared a lot. And it started pulling people together and connecting them. 
And that can be very important when you're on the fringe. Functional programming still has yet to enter mainstream. I think we're making really good progress there, especially perhaps on the front end. But still, we are far away from mainstream. And as a result, there are a lot of lone wolves out there who have seen and played around with functional programming, but they don't do functional programming full time. They don't have the support for that. Their company doesn't buy into the functional programming mindset. So maybe they're able to do a bit here and there, but they still feel isolated. And I think one of the things that the first edition was very successful at is pulling people together and saying, hey, you're not alone. There's lots of other people too who have, who have discovered there's a better way to write software. And even if your current job does not support you using these learnings, still there are companies out there who do support this and will have your back and will enable you to take advantage of all the stuff that's come out of functional programming. And so 2015, it came together because of the community, because people liked the 2014 edition. And one of the things that I knew that I wanted to do is try to turn the conference from a big meetup really into sort of a grown-up conference or a real conference. And that involved a lot of things. It involved doing call for proposal. It involved turning it from a one-day event into something that would last a couple days. So if you're flying all the way from Germany or wherever it is, you're probably not going to come to LambdaConf if it's a single day. But if there's a lot of content and a lot of workshops and just a lot of great stuff that you can really soak in and that takes place over a few days, there's more of a chance we can get you out here. And so we aimed to greatly increase the number of speakers. I think we had, well, it was, what, probably 70, at least 70 speakers. So a huge number of speakers. And considering how many people attended, it was, we had, I think, 250 attendees and, you know, at least 70, maybe 80 speakers. So a lot of speakers and, and that very high speaker to attendee ratio, I, I think was great because everyone, you couldn't go anywhere in the conference without running into lots of speakers. And it, it was just really great. And the fact that we had so many speakers and they were you know, from everywhere and covering all these different really interesting topics and complementary topics, it succeeded, I think, in attracting just an international audience. I mean, not just primarily uh, LambdaConf 2014 was a Colorado conference. There were maybe a third of people that were from everywhere else, um, but primarily it was, a, it was a Colorado conference. And 2014, it totally flipped. It totally flipped. There, there were some people from Colorado, but suddenly it had become this certainly nationwide and even to some extent, you know, worldwide conference where people were really traveling from really far away in order to come to this conference and take part in all the great workshops that we had and and the presentations and the lightning talks and the unconference and and so forth. And so it, it went from from being that glorified meetup into sort of a, a grown-up conference, you know, still indie, still put on by me and my sister-in-law and, and my brother and you know various volunteers we had. But it really took took a huge step up and and we put a lot of time and attention to Lots of details, like we had actual signs and we had schedules and other, other things that grown-up conferences try to do. And as a result, it took way more time, way more personal time for myself and my sister-in-law, Courtney, and my brother, Matthew, and all the, all the volunteers who were involved. 
we spent hundreds and hundreds of hours putting together 2015. But I think people really appreciated it. People really appreciated it. And everyone who went to 2014 and also came for 2015, they're like, wow, this is a totally different conference. I mean, it's not that 2014 wasn't good, but it was it was definitely a, a glorified meetup in 2015. Like, wow, this is possibly one of the best conferences that you know I've ever been to. People were, were telling me that. And it was just really great to see that all that hard work paid off and it, it succeeded in, in putting together something that I think was really special for a lot of people. And the fact that so many people benefited from the conference and we're really excited about it and, of course, excited about this year, that's what keeps me coming back. <laughs> There's a lot of volunteer hours that you have to throw in, into organizing one of these things. And honestly, it, it, I would not do this if people did not love it. But people do love it and they learn a lot from it. It really helps them. And as a result, that gets me excited about doing it every year, including 2016, which will hopefully be the best year yet because of a bunch of changes we've made. But it's, it's exciting to watch it grow so much and also watch it impact the lives of so many people. There was one person who he went to 2015 and he liked it so much he decided to move to Boulder. <laughs> And not only did he move to Boulder, but when he went to look for a local job, he said, I will work for you if you will buy me a ticket for 2016. <laughs> and they agreed to that. He made him put it in the contract. And not just that, but actually we were able to help a lot of people find jobs out of 2015. They were able to go from, you know, a, a not great job that doesn't support functional programming into one that does. And watching those kinds of changes happening, even though it's, not related to the conference. It's more related to the community that emerges from the conference. But watching that happen, that's really exciting because it means that we can make a difference. We can make a difference in the lives of an ordinary programmer. We can help them in some way by building a community. And the conference, of course, is important. It's awesome. It's great. But even bigger than the event itself is the community that comes out of it. And that was one of the things I was impressed with last year when I went was the broadness of the community across the functional languages. Because you had Zishan Lakani talk about list flavored Erlang, which is a very one-off niche thing. You had you had Scala, you had Clojure, you had Haskell, you had some Idris talks, you had PureScript talks, you had a bunch of other things across a bunch of languages. I think there was an Emily talk, which is someone's own personal language that they were working on to just express some ideas and just the wide range of stuff across that. And it's, it wasn't just a, like, it's a functional programming conference, but it's all Haskell or Clojure or Scala or whatever. It was actually across the board and you could see influences from a bunch of different languages and people actually going across tracks and saying, I'm going to go check out the Haskell one and then I'm going to go check out the Clojure one and I'm going to go check out this or this or the Elm talk from Richard Feldman. And it seemed just really impressive how interwoven that was. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's one of the most exciting aspects of LambdaConf. And to some extent, it uh, stems from my own personality, which I describe as a little ADHD and maybe like an anti-fanboy. I like... Haskell and I like PureScript and, and there's even a lot of things I like about Scala, but not a fanboy about any of these things. 
I'm not committed to anyone. Every language has its own set of drawbacks and its own set of quirks. And the more important thing to me is, um, is, is not the language, but the way of using that language to produce software that we can reason about that's very modular, that can be broken down into equations that can benefit from equational reasoning. And that is what drives me. And it, it's also what drives me away from trying to build a language-specific conference because, honestly, I, I don't think – I'm not super interested in a Scala-only conference or in a PureScript-only conference or in a Haskell-only conference because, to me, the bigger picture is not language you're using. It's what techniques you're using to solve the problems of building quality, maintainable, modular, and easy-to-reason-about software. And, and those techniques, functional programming – they apply in lots of different languages. The languages are far less relevant, I believe, than the, the techniques that you apply in the languages. And as a result, it's sort of my personal you know, preference and, and taste sort of trickles down into everything. The call for proposals and, and just my vision for LambdaConf is not a place for, for just Haskell programmers. It's a place for people who like functional programming and want to apply that in whatever language they're using. And I think that the cross-pollination effects, the effects of bringing together all these people who are using different programming languages is just phenomenal because you'll be a JavaScript developer and you'll see something really cool being done by someone using TypeScript. Or you'll be an F-sharp developer and you'll learn about something that programmers using Idris are doing and you'll be able to pull that back into your language. And I think that benefit of bringing all these different programmers from all these different languages together and focusing more on our shared passion for functional programming has tremendous benefits because it, it enables ideas to flow faster through the language boundaries and enables us to sort of all, you know, get on the same page about what's the best way to write software in, in all these different types of, of languages. And it's one of the things that I'm most proud about when I think about LambdaConf. It's the fact that it is not a language-specific conference. And in fact, if you go there in 2016, you're going to see lots of talks like Emily. There's going to be lots of like sort of niche language talks, new programming languages, new functional programming languages like Odin, for example, and lots more besides that. You're going to see that functional programming is not about any one particular language. It's much, much, much bigger than that. And anyone, no matter what language they're using, they can use the techniques of functional programming to improve the way they write software. So you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but just recently you announced, or at least as we record this, just recently you announced that the speakers that were accepted. So what does the program overall kind of look like? How does that spread out across some of the stuff? You mentioned new languages like Odin and some of this, but what does that kind of feel of the 2016 look like? Because I was talking to Chris Allen as well, who does the Haskell programming book, gave some stuff there, and he's talking about doing a full-on workshop of a training course there with Julie Moronuki, his co-author, about Haskell. So what is the feel and vibe of this year looking for and what can people expect if they're wanting to check it out? Yeah, so this is actually quite an event. It's potentially, depending on what you come for, it could take up the whole week. It's really amazing how it's grown. So Monday and Tuesday of May 23rd, so May 23rd and 24th, that's a Monday and Tuesday, we're offering commercial training. And this is not put on by LambdaConf. It's not associated with LambdaConf. 
These commercial training packages are put on by third parties. And this year we have confirmed beginning Haskell and intermediate Haskell. And these are being taught by Chris and Julie, who are the authors of Haskellbook.com. And these workshops, they're, they're two days and they're solid and they're totally independent. So if you don't know Haskell, you could go to the beginning one. If you played around with Haskell, you could go to the intermediate one. But they're going to be amazing. I mean, not only do Chris and Julie have a ton of experience teaching people, obviously having written what is perhaps the best uh, book for learning Haskell out there, Haskellbook.com. But they're putting a lot of time and effort into getting these workshops right. So I think they're going to be an amazing experience for anyone who's played around with functional programming and wants to sort of get it from the source, one of the most popular and most powerful functional programming languages out there. So those are going to be amazing and they're going to take place on Monday to Tuesday. They're just sort of, you know, a packed two solid days of leveling up with Haskell programming. Those are the two things we've confirmed. And if you can't get your company to pay for that, then Chris and Julie have been so kind and offered a really, really generous self-pay discount. So really there's there's no excuse for anyone who wants to know Haskell probably not to go to this. If you're going to be at LambdaCom, definitely come a couple days earlier and, and go to these workshops. And then on Wednesday, we're having a bunch of free conferences. So these are mini conferences. And again, these are not being sort of put on by LambdaConf. They're being put on by third parties. But LambdaConf is going to sponsor coffee and pizza. So in the morning, there'll be coffee and, and for lunch, there'll be pizza and we're paying for the rooms. And these free conferences, there's three of them, and they cover a wide range of topics. There's PureScript Conf, which is a conference that's totally devoted to PureScript, which I put on for semi-selfish reasons because I, I love PureScript and I employ a lot of PureScript developers. And then there's PRL Conf, which focuses on structural and behavioral foundations of programming languages including things like type theory. I think that's going to be a really awesome conference. You're, you're not going to want to miss if you're interested in PLT. And you're, you're probably going to want to go to that conference. And then the third mini conference is a type level summit. So type level has been pushing the boundaries of what's possible in the, in the realm of purely functional, statically typed programming in Scala. And, and some of the type level libraries out there are just amazing. They're just really super high quality. They save you a ton of time. They're very type safe. They're just really, really amazing. And I'm very, very happy that, that we're going to have a, a whole day devoted to covering some of the, the libraries in the type level ecosystem. Really, really amazing stuff. And that does it for the mini conferences. And then on Thursday, May 26th, we jump straight into LambdaConf. And there's going to be a bunch of workshops on Thursday, and these are going to range from two-hour workshops to a four-hour workshop. So yes, uh, there's going to be some long workshops that are really have a chance to go in-depth with some really crucial material that uh, a lot of people will be interested in for leveling up. But they're going to cover a whole range of topics, and there's going to be a beginner track, intermediate track advanced track and a sort of alternative track. So no matter where you're at as a functional programmer, if you don't know anything, if you, you barely know what functional programming is, or if you're super advanced and you, you've done lots of functional programming for years, there's going to be some really meaty workshops that let you go beyond just the superficial stuff and dig in and get hands-on leveling up skills. 
And then on Friday and Saturday, there'll still be a few workshops on Friday, I think. But mostly the emphasis will change from the more in-depth and hands-on stuff that you see in Thursday to more talks and presentations and, and so forth that cover a wide range of topics. And we've broken that down into a beginning track, an intermediate track, advanced track, and then the alternative track. And so there's, there's pretty much something for everyone at all times and of all skill level. And there's going to be a lot of language mixing inside there. So for the advanced track, for example, it's going to have stuff in Scala-related talks and Haskell-related talks, Idris-related talks, and all sorts of other things in there, all catering towards programmers who've been doing FP for a number of years and, and really want a chance to learn the next great thing. And same way for the other talks. There's going to be a mix of languages in each track. It's broken down by skill level to help people better find the content that matches their skill level. That was one of the, the things that we learned about 2015 is that some people were just having trouble locating content that matched their skill level. So we're trying to put a lot of effort into just making sure that everything in the beginner track is beginning. Everything in the intermediate track is intermediate. Everything in the advanced track is, is advanced. So that goes Friday and Saturday, lots of really great talks over those days. And then we're going to have a unconference on Sunday. So Sunday afternoon, really the the whole day, the morning too, if you want, but the official portion is, is going to be in the afternoon. So we've got a bunch of rooms and chalkboards and projectors. And this is a chance for people to hack on some software project together or to talk about ideas they found were interesting or inspiring during the conference or to follow up on some of the, the shorter talks. If a speaker got into something but didn't have a chance to say everything they wanted to say or to do anything hands-on, the unconference will be a great place to do that. And we'll also have a number of panels on Sunday. So a fun time, you know, we're going to have like a, a panel on how you do functional programming in the front end and and what's the best way to do that? Elm is a TypeScript, is a PureScript, you know, is it plain old JavaScript? What are some of the trade-offs? So I'd, I'd expect some pretty interesting uh, panels to take place on on Sunday on the unconference day. And then there's going to be uh, miscellaneous stuff. Like there's uh, going to be a dinner on Friday and lightning talks on Friday and, and just various activities throughout those few days for people interested in getting together with other functional programmers and doing something social. So I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's really on my radar. And as I mentioned to you, really want to make it, not sure if I'm going to be able to, just because would be taking a three-year-old if I do it, since we just had a newborn. But if I do manage to make it, it sounds pretty impressive. And I'm definitely looking forward to the 2017 that I'm sure everybody's going to try and convince you to put on. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> After hearing about what's in store for 2016, but you kind of mentioned the PureScript conference, and I at least want to allot a little bit of time to talk about PureScript and what you've been doing with it, because with your current company, Slam Data, I know you put on the PureScript conference, as you said, the mini conference last year before Lambda Conf as a selfish thing for getting that exposure and helping to drive interest in PureScript, but... Wanted to get a little bit about why PureScript and what you found about PureScript and how you found using it and actually bringing in people to use it as part of a company. So I guess just start with kind of how you came across PureScript and decided that you wanted to take the dive into using that with your company and building a product on PureScript. 
Yeah, sure. So after I became a true believer in FP, uh, one of the things I've always really enjoyed is statically typed languages. And I, I've done a bunch of stuff with dynamically typed languages as well. But for larger scale programs, I find the compile time assurance of certain types of properties about your code to be super valuable and to function as really great documentation for other developers. And having that safety net of the static types, I'm such a strong believer in it that for the past few companies, the startups that I've done, I've used or encouraged a statically typed programming language that compiles down to JavaScript for the front end. So for my past few companies, it's, it's actually been this language called Hacks, which is TypeScript before there was TypeScript. And Hacks is actually a totally reasonable language, actually, in, in, in some ways it's better than TypeScript. And it compiles into JavaScript among many, many, many other things. And it allows you to add a certain degree of type safety and really clean up a lot of code. And, and it's a nice language to work with. And when I put together my current company, Slam Data, I was really interested in, okay, am I going to encourage hacks again? Or am I going to be able to find some other sort of, you know, next generation statically typed functional programming language that also compiles to JavaScript that I can really get behind and, and support in a meaningful way? And I looked around and I saw... There's a bunch of different options out there. The Alt.js scene has exploded. There's a page out there that has all the different languages that compile to JavaScript. And it's just enormous how many different languages are out there, both existing languages and new languages that are specifically targeting JavaScript. Clearly, people don't want to be using JavaScript. And I think a lot of the domain knowledge on how you build a compiler has sort of entered mainstream and been simplified enough that an ordinary person can go in and actually figure out how to build a whole programming language that compiles to JavaScript without a ton of work or a ton of background. And that's been great. It meant that when I was doing my research for Slam Data, I had lots of things to choose from. And I quickly settled on PureScript for the following reasons. First off, it adopts a Haskell-like syntax. And Haskell has, in my opinion, one of the, the better syntaxes out there. Just if you're doing a lot of functional programming, then a lot of the idioms that you rely on, like combining functions together and applying functions and, and doing pattern matching and, and so forth, they really look a lot better. They look a lot simpler. They look more like what they're supposed to mean in a language like Haskell or PureScript. And so I was immediately taken by, you know, the Haskell-like syntax and the fact that it was trying to make functional programming, pure functional programming, easy and natural and as intuitive as you can. And, and obviously there's a drawback there. Haskell-like syntax is totally different than C-like syntax. It just looks totally different. And it takes your brain a little while to rewire around that type of syntax and understand how to parse out the different bits, what space means and and so forth, and what the associativity of things is. But eventually you get over those hurdles, and, and they're not too bad, and you discover, hey, it's actually really a lot easier to do functional programming in, in a language like Haskell or PureScript than it is to do it in Java or even Scala, just because the, these languages were designed to make functional programming as easy as possible. So I was taken by 
the syntax of PureScript and the fact that it was uh, purely functional, even in the early days when I was looking, it was still a purely functional programming language. And I really liked Phil, who's the author of the language. I talked to him for a while and I got a sense of his commitment to the language and what he was trying to do with it. And it felt good. It felt right. And even in the early days, I could see just how fast the language was growing. The, I was the first person to hang out in the PureScript IRC room. Literally the first person. The, the room existed. Phil created it. And I was the first person hanging out in there. And after I started hanging out, you know, Phil started hanging out more and then more people joined and so forth. And now there's 159 people who hang out in that PureScript IRC chat room. And it's always active. People are always in there talking about this and that. It's just, just amazing to have watched that from day one. The number of libraries has just exploded. Just there's so many libraries out there. And some of them are doing really, really great things. There's, there's so many libraries that I can't even keep track of them. There's just literally hundreds and hundreds. And every week, new libraries, new PureScript libraries come out there. And that's just been amazing to watch as well. Because back in the early days, there was nothing. And now there's hundreds and hundreds of libraries to choose from and, and more every single week. And then finally, the other thing that really drew me to PureScript is the fact that not only is it a really good fit for the target of JavaScript, so unlike Haskell on JavaScript, which is actually possible, you can do that, you can compile Haskell to, to JavaScript these days, there's a mismatch there between the semantics of Haskell, which are sort of non-strict, and the semantics of JavaScript, which are strict. And as a result, you have to have this runtime and you have to impose all this sort of artificial overhead on, on your program. You end up with gigantic programs that don't run particularly fast. And PureScript is bare metal. It compiles to the JavaScript that you would write by hand if you were writing this style of programming by hand. So it's, it's super bare metal. And as a result, its semantics just naturally map onto the JavaScript world. It's easy to do FFI and foreign function interface. It's easy to call out to JavaScript and JavaScript can call back into PureScript. All that stuff is super easy and it's just it just works out of the box. You don't have to think about it. That JavaScript is super clean and super nice and easy to debug and all that great stuff. And then PureScript has gone further in sort of cleaning up some of the warts with Haskell, I'd say. Haskell's a very awesome language probably the best functional programming language out there. But at the same time, it's also 30 plus years old and there's sort of various different warts inside the language and obviously all these different extensions that you can combine together in lots of different ways. And then a sometimes crufty standard library that made a lot of bad choices that they're still trying to clean up now and probably will be for the next 10 years. And PureScript comes in there and cleans all that stuff up. It actually succeeds in learning from 30 plus years of, of Haskell development and I think improves on not just the way the standard libraries are factored and structured, but also some of the syntactical issues and some of the language design choices, like which extensions are sort of baked into the language. So all that stuff, it, it attracted me and it made me gravitate towards PureScript. And then it was a big bet choosing any of these languages whether it was going to be Elm or PureScript or whatever it was going to be, sort of a big bet because you choose one of these languages and you build your company around this language. And what happens if it goes away or what happens if you can't hire for it? Or, or you know, there's so many things that can go wrong when you're choosing a new programming language. 
And so I did that with still a little bit of trepidation, I'd say, but also as a strong believer in functional programming and being in the position of early stage sort of CTO and co-founder of a startup who has the ability to sort of set the direction for the company's technology, I wanted to invest into the functional programming ecosystem in the front end. And as a result, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to choose PureScript and I'm going to make a conscious effort to invest into that ecosystem by training people, by supporting work on core libraries and the compiler and so forth. And so I did. I, I made a big bet on the language. And fortunately, I think that bet has paid off. The PureScript compiler is still around. It's never been better maintained than it is right now. There are, I think, 100, literally 130 plus people have contributed to the compiler. There's new pull requests going in you know, all the time. The quality of the code base continues to increase. Phil's done a ton of good work. Gary, whom we employ at my company, also a ton of good work. There's just so, so much happening with the language and the compiler is just improving on an almost weekly basis. And then the ecosystem, like I said before, has taken off. There's not one UE library for PureScript, you know, in Elm, there's one, there's that one, the, the Elm one, but in PureScript, there's like, I don't know, probably a dozen different UE libraries you can use. And that's, that's been really great because all these people are like exploring the landscape of possibilities, what's possible in the realm of statically typed, purely functional programming languages. And they're all taking different paths, you know, and they all learn off each other. And someone will create a new library that builds from some of the stuff that these other two have done. That's growing so fast. And it's growing in a way that really makes me optimistic about the future of the language. There's so many choices out there, so many really good choices, and so much active development and sort of R&D that I think the future of programming and pure script is really, really bright. And of course, one of the other considerations is not just is the, is the compiler going to be maintained and are there going to be good libraries we can choose. And to some extent, my company has contributed some of the more popular pure script libraries out there. But the other big question is talent, right? It doesn't matter if the compiler is well-maintained and if there are lots of libraries, if you can't hire for pure script. And I think that's an area where the fact that PureScript is growing real fast is getting a lot of people to take a look at it. And the rise of sort of functional programming as it's become more popular in recent years is getting a lot of people to dabble in these Alt.js languages as a part-time thing. And that's helping because it means that there's a lot of people out there who have some level of familiarity with PureScript. And what happens is a lot of them end up sort of falling in love with the language they write some little library and they're like, wow, I never knew programming could be so enjoyable. And as a result, there's actually, I have a queue of half a dozen people who have reached out to me. So I haven't done anything. They've reached out to me and they're like, we want to write pure script all day long. Will you please hire us? And that's phenomenal. And, and these people, you know, they've done a little open source here and there. They've worked on pure script projects as, as sort of a hobby but really, there's more people who want a position at my company writing full-time PureScript than I can hire. And I think that's just an amazing testament to the power that this language brings to front-end development. The fact that I've got this big queue of people I wish I could hire but can't right now because I don't have the openings. 
And it gives me confidence that going forward, as we do expand our, our front end team, I am going to be able to hire people who already know PureScript and have already contributed to the really great and fast growing ecosystem in the open source world of PureScript. So it sounds like, once again, the myth of if we pick this fringe language, we're not going to be able to find anybody who does this has been debunked yet again from your perspective. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If anything, I think if you pick PureScript, you're going to have way more people applying for the position than, than you could possibly hire just because there's there's just so many people who are excited about the language and just would cut off their right arm in order to be able to work with such a beautiful, amazing language like that full-time to be actually paid to work. People work in PureScript because they, they like it. They spend nights and weekends using the language. It's just that you know amazing. And the fact that if you open up a full-time position where they're actually going to get paid to do that stuff all day long, wow, that gets a lot of people out there excited. So I, I'd say, like you said, it's it's been debunked yet again. And I'm assuming what you're seeing is these are all relatively talented people that you would want to hire for the most part if you could instead of just saying well here's a thousand people clamoring for this job but now i've got to vet it as well right exactly i'd say of that queue of six people who have reached out i literally want to hire every single one and part of that is because pure scripts early stage so the only people playing with it are people who are sort of you know passionate about functional programming and very sort of driven and they they like to do open source on the side and stuff. So every one of them is exceptionally qualified, just really top of the line developers. And who knows if that persists forever, probably doesn't persist forever. But even in the realm of Haskell, I, I think if you open up a position for Haskell, then a lot of the people that you get applying to that job they're really passionate about functional programming and they spend a lot of their time trying to learn how to write better software. And that's good when you're looking for really high quality engineers, that passion and that drive, that continuous drive to find better ways of writing software is the most important thing that you can possibly hope for in a new hire. And certainly the PeerScript ecosystem has that in excess just because it's so early and the only kinds of people interested in that are, are already just very passionate people who are interested in continuous self-improvement. And I'm guessing they're invested in making sure that, be it PureScript or whatever language it is, actually succeeds because they enjoy doing it and they enjoy that mentality. So they're not necessarily as reckless in some of their decisions because they want to make sure that they're making a good investment long-term. I think that's true. I think that's true. What I, What I've seen is a lot of people taking a lot of care and concern for doing things in the right way and building good documentation and improving peer script tooling, improving error messages in the compiler, because people sort of see what's at stake here. What we're trying to do is forever change the way people write front-end software. And to do that, you need to do it with an eye for the long term, the stuff that's going to keep the language growing, keep the ecosystem healthy. And I think I definitely see that in early people working inside that ecosystem. And that sounds like a great rundown and just more reinforcement, again, for busting some of those myths for anybody who's listening that says, well, we can't have functional programming or we can't have this because it's too risky and we won't be able to hire people and people won't find good talent and all this stuff. So wanted to get your perspective and it sounds like you do align with that from everything you've covered so far. 
I do. I do. I think some of the things that have helped mitigate the risk in our case are hiring a developer who works on the PureScript compiler and contributing a lot of the early sort of formative foundational libraries to the ecosystem and maintaining them and so forth and putting on the PureScript conference and doing other things to promote the language and to build up the ecosystem. And we're a small startup, you know, we're 13 people. So we're a tiny little startup and we've been able to do sort of all this and we've been able to accept the risk. In my view, if a big company said, hey, we're going to choose PureScript, well, that almost becomes no risk. If you can take 50 developers and stick them on PureScript and you're willing to contribute back to the ecosystem, then the odds of the project failing or even sort of diminishing go to zero. Because like with that many resources, if you want a niche language like PureScript or Elm or whatever it is to succeed, if you're a big company, you have the resources to make that happen because, hey, Slam Data is, is a startup and, and we're already doing, I, I, I think, a really good job of promoting that. But if you're a big company, you know, you can make one of these things last forever and improve forever if you really want. So I, I don't mind to the whole, we're not going to choose that language because it's too risky. I actually don't think that that's a legitimate argument against a niche language like PureScript. So that just sounds like great advice and ammunition for anybody who's listening and is actually thinking about this either on their own or in their company. So wanted to make sure we covered that. And we've covered a lot. We covered your whole background. We covered a lot of stuff about LambdaConf. We've covered all this PureScript stuff. Is there anything we've missed that we need to make mention to before we start wrapping up? You know, I, I don't think so. Obviously, if any of your listeners are interested in attending LambdaConf, then I think we have a discount code for you. Is that right? We'll check on that and uh, we'll get it announced too as part of the announcements. So super. Yeah, I, I hope that your listenership or, or whatever you call it continues to grow because I think you're covering all the right topics and it's at the right time. I think functional programming is, is sort of on the edge here. It's on, it's on the brink, certainly on the front end of really entering mainstream in a big way. And I think we need more stuff like functional geekery out there. Well, thank you. So again, we talked PureScript and contributing to PureScript. We talked LambdaConf. But do you have any other things you want to plug or any other upcoming appearances that people can find you out or projects you want people to check out and be involved with or just any other projects that you want people to know about and be involved with? Yeah, I think that the biggest thing is important for people to understand is they really can make a difference. They can make a difference. And there's a number of things that people can do, I think, to become more involved in promoting functional programming. And some of them are pretty simple. Like, is there a meetup in your area for functional programming? If not, consider starting one. Or if there is one, consider talking about something. I think that people get this impression that they can't share anything about functional programming unless they've been doing it for, you know, five years or so and know everything, you know, know what a monad is and all these other sort of complex concepts. That's not true. The reality is that we need people at every level of skill to be talking about all these different concepts, whether it's a simple thing like here's an immutable data structure and here's why we want to make it immutable or whether it's super advanced, you know, free profunct or whatever. We need people at every single level of skill talking about all these different concepts. And every single person out there who 
even knows a little bit of functional programming is qualified to speak about that and to share that with other people. So I would encourage people to get involved with local meetups. And if there are no local meetups, start one. You know, it's, it can be you. It, it, it doesn't have to be someone else. It can be you. All you need is that passion. And another obvious way that people can become involved is open source. So it doesn't have to be pure script, although I would encourage you to at least take a look there. But there are lots of different communities. Basically, almost every language has its own community of functional programmers, whether it's JavaScript or Swift or C Sharp or F Sharp or whatever, any language out there, even the language that you use as your day job programming language, it has a community of functional programmers. And more likely than not, that community, it wants to do more than it has the resources to do right now. So if there's a way you can become involved and start contributing libraries or pull requests or patches, I think it's super beneficial for everyone to be involved in open source and even more critical in the realm of functional programming because we need more infrastructure. The world of imperative programming has had decades to build up all the infrastructure that exists inside that space that you can find on GitHub and SourceForge. And the world of functional programming, we're still working on some of that stuff. And so we need help so people can become involved by finding whatever their community is and whatever languages they want to work with and contributing. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be much time, but that's certainly a way to become more involved. And then I think, you know, at attending conferences like LambdaConf or if LambdaConf is far away, you know, find something. There's like all these little conferences sort of sprouting up and and they're one-day affairs in many cases, but find something like that that you can drive to, that you can get to without too much hassle and consider speaking there or, or just going and attending and networking and learning about what other people are doing because that type of community building activity, it, it helps you, it helps other people, and it's good for the whole functional programming ecosystem. So I think there's a bunch of ways in which every single one of your listeners can make a measurable impact on how successful functional programming becomes at improving the way we write software. And I would encourage everyone to not think, oh, that's someone else's job, but to think in terms of, hey, I could be doing that. There's stuff I could do. I think if we all think like that, then in the next few years, there's there's going to be some major exciting things happening in the world of software development. That sounds like some great advice and a great call to action for everybody listening. So getting to the end of time, so I want to make sure we know where people can find you and find out more what's going on with you and everything you're involved with. So where's the places people to track you down and keep an update on everything that you're involved with? Yeah. So first off, if you're a software engineer, connect with me on LinkedIn. I will connect to anyone, any software engineer who reaches out on LinkedIn and I don't connect with anyone in BD or sales or anyone else, but any software engineer, my doors are open and my networkers is yours. So if you have a profile on LinkedIn, then do connect with me because it could be helpful for me helping you find a job or vice versa. It's just a good thing to do. Also, I blog on my own personal blog, which is on degoes.net. That's D-E-G-O-E-S dot net. And I typically write about functional programming, although occasionally other stuff. And I'm on Twitter at JDGoes, that's J-D-E-G-O-E-S. And you can find me tweeting mostly about functional programming and about analytics and some stuff in big data related to my work. But mostly I tweet about finding better ways to write software. 
And then LambdaConf actually has its own dedicated URL this year. So if you hop on over to lambdaconf.us, you can find out what's happening with the conference and subscribe to a newsletter. And there's lots of stuff around LambdaConf that we're going to be doing in the future to help try to build a community. And then I'm always available. You can send me email at john at digos.net if you have any questions or whatever. But I, I get regular requests for help. But I try to, if you're looking for uh, to hire people who appreciate functional programming, or if you're looking for jobs, or you know, if you just want advice on something, I'm more than willing to help out. I've been able to help a lot of people, fortunately. And I think it's one of the things that, you know, if you're in a position of influence or you're connected, then it's sort of an obligation that you that you have to help people. And I view that as being extremely important. So if, if you're in a bad position and you don't have support for functional programming in your job or, or whatever it is, you know, pick me and I'll do my best to help out. That sounds great. And I'll make sure to get all those references added to the show notes as well. Fantastic. I would like to give a Jane thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, John, for taking your time and joining me today. It was a great conversation and a great overview of your journey into functional programming and your view of working to build a larger community around functional programming. So thank you very much for taking the time and joining me today. Absolutely. It was a total pleasure. And thank you for inviting me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.